Hey folks, special announcement. The Foundations of Heart Rate Variability course is opening its doors for enrollment soon. The students who participated in the first enrollment last year gave hugely positive feedback, and that included everyone from NFL coaches to doctors, trainers, other types of health consultants, and even folks just looking to more deeply understand their own systemic condition. Um, The Foundations of HRV course isn't open often, so I recommend at least popping over there and checking it out. And you can do that by going to EliteHRV.com slash HRV course, all one word, or HRVcourse.com slash EliteHRV, all one word. Both of those links actually point to the same spot. Um, and you can also snag an Elite HRV discount for being a listener of the show. And instructions are in that link, which is again, HRVcourse.com slash EliteHRV all one word, no hyphens or anything in there. And that link is also provided right in the description of this episode on your podcast player. So without further ado, really excited to have Dan Quintana on the show for this episode. So let's dive in. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Hey folks, Jason Moore here. Welcome back to the Elite HRV podcast. Today's guest is Dan Quintana. Dan is a research fellow at the University of Oslo and received his PhD in psychology from the University of Sydney in 2013. His research focuses on the role of the autonomic nervous system, hormones, mental health, and improving the measurement of heart rate variability, which is uh, stuff I've seen him tweeting about and you know, some of the ways that we got connected were through my following his work on Twitter and some of his podcast episodes and things. And on that note, Dan has actually published a ton of research on these subjects. And one of the best parts is that the majority, if not all of it, is available for free to the public. So you can find links to his research on HRV and mental health over on his Twitter, which is at DSQuintana. D-S-Q-U-I-N-T-A-N-A, and I'll link to that. He's also the co-host of the Everything Hurts podcast, which covers everything where the life sciences meets the biological sciences. And of course, we'll have links to all this and everything we discussed today in the podcast description of this episode, as well as in the show notes over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. So here we go. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, no, I I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know it's later in the evening for you there in Norway, and it's just the afternoon here, so really appreciate it. But yeah, so we're going to be picking your brain a little bit on the relationship between mental and physical health today. And to help folks kind of understand the magnitude of the mental health part of the situation, I'd like to start real quick by quoting some pretty alarming figures that came that I stole right out of one of your papers. And you cite that the global health cost uh, or the global cost rather of mental health is estimated to be about six trillion US dollars by 2030. And that's increasing up from already a 2.5 trillion US dollars in 2010. 
while cardiovascular disease, which is another major player, is only estimated to come in at around $1 trillion by 2030. So we're talking six times the cost in for mental health uh, than cardiovascular disease by 2030. And these numbers are huge. And when it comes to health and healthcare burdens, folks often think of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other physical pathology, and they don't really realize the severity and prevalence of mental health disorders. So I'm going <laughs> to, I won't talk too long before I, <laughs> before I let you go on it, but your research focuses kind of on mental health, the autonomic nervous system, as I mentioned, HRV hormones. And there's this other word that's kind of come onto my radar and been capturing more of my attention over the past few years, and that's psychophysiology. Mm. And I find that topic to be incredibly interesting. But to kind of open it up, could you give the audience kind of a quick rundown of what psychophysiology is? Yeah, so psychophysiology is the uh, is looking at the impact of physiology on on the brain and their mental processes. There was a the famous quote that uh, Marty Seligman said a few years ago, who was um, I think he was a, a past president of the uh, American Psychological Association, and that is uh, half the psycho- half of psychology occurs below the neck, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. And there's a lot of truth in looking at what the impact of the the body and all the body and all the physiology systems happens to all psychiatric illnesses or psychological processes. So that that's basically what psychophysiology is, is looking at um, different methods, which includes heart rate variability, but it can also include um, EEG, fMRI, uh, looking at hormones. So it's quite a quite a broad topic. And there's a few specialist journals that particularly focus on, on psychophysiology. But uh, yeah, it's a broad and growing topic, which is, uh, which is looking at those impacts on how we think. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And the more I read about it, the realize, I realize the deeper I could go on it. And so kind of in lay terms, it's essentially the study of the interaction between the mind and body Hmm. And and kind of like you said, there's some quantified aspects to that. There's also just kind of realizing that some of the processes happen in different parts of the body that we originally thought were just kind of isolated in the brain, for example. But how did you kind of get into this field of study? How did what kind of drew you to all this? Well, uh, I first wanted to become a, a clinical psychologist back when I uh, back when I finished high school and started studying psychology and I uh, really started getting drawn to the more physiological aspects. I was almost getting a bit uh, frustrated because we, a lot of the research that we learn about how we think or how we feel comes from, uh, comes from questionnaires and uh, quite often these questionnaires can actually be inaccurate. One, because sometimes we don't really even know ourselves, but two, sometimes people lie and they want to give a certain impression of themselves. So you don't get mm-hmm. these, um, these inaccurate look at what people are really thinking or feeling. And then I started coming across all this research, which was looking at these uh, more physiological measures. And uh, I saw this and I'm, I thought, this is fantastic. We have some very hard data. Uh, we can, you know, you, you can look at these differences, you know, what happens to the heart rate under certain situations fluctuation of hormones, all these different things. And just having the hard data really drew me towards, uh, towards like a physiology. And um, uh, my, my first job 
for, uh, out of undergraduate psychology was um, uh, working in a research center, which was um, looking at uh, heart rate variability, brain imaging, and, uh, and all these different factors in, in depression, uh, in anxiety, and all these different disorders. And I thought, no, nah, this is exactly what I want to do. And uh, I haven't looked back since. Nice. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's definitely a fascinating area. And that's a that's a neat way to get into it. And and I know you mentioned that there's several different aspects to the to the quantification side, which is something we kind of talk about a lot on the show. But as far as all the link goes between uh, the mind, the body, the psychophysiology concept that we were talking about, what role does the autonomic nervous system generally play in all of this? Well, within uh, there's this idea that when you have a high resting state HRV, which is uh, which is indicative of increased parasympathetic nervous system activity, that social engagement can can only can only actually occur when the environment is perceived as safe. So if we have a safe environment and increased HRV, we're more likely to have uh, the stronger amount of social engagement, emotion regulation, and, and all these other things, which are often uh, deficits in these things are often associated in, in mental illnesses. So if, if these circuits or if these autonomic nervous system circuits uh, are inhibited, then, you can act, then you're going to have trouble actually switching between these environments. So by having uh, increased heart rate variability, which is measured by, uh, sorry, which is a measure of autonomic nervous system function, um, and with a more flexible autonomic nervous system function, then you're better able to actually deal with different environments. Okay. And so that's kind of like what led you to heart rate variability, which obviously I deal with regularly. <laughs> um, but uh, it just, it was kind of that quantification aspect of the autonomic nervous system and that playing a role in kind of representing something measurable that emotional self-regulation and psychological flexibility are tied to. Yeah. Okay. And so, and you kind of mentioned heart rate variability, not only as a key indicator of those kind of capacity for self-regulation, psychological flexibility, but also just as an overall physical health and well-being marker, right? Mm. Okay. So, actually, let's dive in a little bit more and it kind of on the term psychological flexibility and emotional uh, self-regulation or those two terms. Maybe you could explain just real quick what each of those are in a bit more words. Yeah. So, with psychological flexibility, uh, quite often we find ourselves in different environments. You you don't want to be set or rigid in your ways. You want to be you want to be flexible, almost in the sense that um, when you uh, when you go to the top of a, a really tall building uh, and in the wind, you'll actually notice that it's uh, that, that it sways quite a bit. But uh, you know, if you're not really familiar with architecture, you might think, "Oh, this is actually a design flaw." But the very fact that the building can sway is actually uh, is actually beneficial. Uh, much in the same way, when it comes to how we approach different situations or how we approach our day to day lives. We want to be able to adapt to different environments. If we were always calm, and uh, then if a dangerous situation comes up, we want to be able to switch quite quickly. And we're actually quite good at doing that. However, what some people aren't good at doing is the other way around, and their body has a sense of alarm or a sense of danger when uh, when there actually shouldn't be, when there should be a sense of calm. So when it comes to having poor flexibility, those are the people that can't actually switch well between those uh between those two environments or between those two uh, thought patterns there okay interesting so usually the kind of fight or flight so to speak activation 
is not the broken side. It's the coming back the other direction. Exactly. Um, okay. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting because I think I just had a thought randomly that ever since I was like 16, I've been writing that I was adaptable on my resume mm. because when I was 16, I had nothing else to write on there. <laughs> um, but I didn't really realize at the time that it's that one trait that I just kind of happened to focus on from a young age has really helped over the years in dealing with a number of different situations. And when you're talking about that psychological flexibility, the first thing that came to mind was that building analogy as well. So as soon as you started saying that, I was picturing it in my head. Like, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to hear that it's kind of a usually a one-sided thing. And I can totally see that in day-to-day life, if you're psychologically inflexible, and so to speak, that not and not responding well to change, mm. or maybe you have difficulty kind of prioritizing mental resources when things change quickly, that that would be really tough to deal with. Well, here's a good example. Quite often, it's it's almost sort of stereotyped a bit, but then. You know, you you see those movies where you see the um, uh, you, you might be in a in a psychiatric hospital and you'll see somebody rocking back and forth and having that rocking motion and sort of cradling themselves and doing that. Mm-hmm. For some people, that's not actually very far off. And um, the reason that those uh, by, by actually doing that and by by doing that rocking or that sort of stereotypical stereotypical behavior, you're actually trying to reset your autonomic nervous system, much in the same way as sighs. So doing a, you know, that, that big sigh that you hear when people are sad or they're experiencing something, just the simple act of doing that sigh actually resets your your autonomic nervous system. And uh, so, it's, it's, so a lot of the things that we do already uh, behaviorally uh, are these things that we do in a sense to try and reset and um, you know, make make our systems flexible again and get us back in the right track and kind of remind ourselves, all right, this isn't the right thing. Let's uh, let's shift gears a bit here. Yeah, that that's powerful information. It, it kind of, you know, we we talk about breathing a lot in this discussion, and you know, especially kind of emphasizing a nice exhale or full exhale and things like that. But mm-hmm. you know, I guess it's it hasn't come up at least on the podcast that other kind of natural, almost nervous tick seeming behavior is just a natural way of your body trying to do the same thing. Exactly. Um, so, so that's interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. So the, the rocking, I mean, obviously not, not tons of people are, are doing this, but I, when I'm thinking really hard and sitting at a desk or a chair, I shake my legs, you know, I'm one of those leg shaker people. Mm. And I think that it's just kind of my body just relieving tension or just, I don't know what it's doing. Uh, I haven't really looked into it that deeply, but would that kind of fit in this kind of framework as well of kind of just keeping my autonomic nervous system balanced or am I just kind of fishing at this point? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we, we, all, we all do these sort of things just to, in, in an effort to, these kind of ticks almost to, reset our systems and uh doing the leg shaking or the size it's all yeah it's all involved in that but uh no it's and yeah it's it's breathing oh it's just it's incredible how much of a role it plays in uh in our autonomic nervous system and just the slow breaths out there's no no better way to to slow things down than by uh, than by doing that yeah and so i want to i definitely want to come back around and revisit that breathing but while we're on this kind of 
psychological flexibility is is emotional self-regulation related to that or is it a kind of a different expression of what is emotional self-regulation yeah. um no it, it, it is quite relevant in the sense that you you might be able to find yourself in uh in a rut so to speak or quite often you know you know that you get into those worry spirals where you're thinking of one thing and then you're lying in bed and you just you just woken up and you know you think oh I'm going to be able to do this and then one thing turns to another and before you know it it's uh, the whole world's falling down. That's quite quite you know quite within the same vein there that you want to be able to actually regulate your your thoughts and feelings and when you have increased heart rate variability or increased autonomic nervous system function then then you better be able to you, you better able to switch between those two systems there because the thing is being like all these things and all the emotions that we have they're adaptive. So being angry, there are some times where being angry is 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 is, is important, or being worried um, is is important. But it's when you actually can't rein it in during times when this isn't adaptive that it becomes a problem. So right. having that emo- having that uh, emotion regulation is having better control of, of of actually you know this is the right emotion for the right time. And of course, you know it's it's these things can be very difficult to control. Um, however, um, there are some times where the horse bolts. And uh, it's very hard to actually control these things, but with greater regulation. Um, and we, we may touch on t- touch on it a bit later. But one of the most um, consistent things that we find uh, that that within our research across any disorder, be it depression, be it anxiety, autism spectrum disorders, is that um, rumination or this constant worry is has one of the strongest associations with heart rate variability. Time and time again, we find the exact same thing. People who worry more tend to have lower heart rate variability. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, that's, we can go ahead and talk more about that now. I mean, I was kind of just going to ask anyways, and you mentioned that an increased heart rate variability uh, helps indicate that you're more likely to have greater psychological flexibility Mm. and and self-regulation. But, you know, I was just going to ask, is the inverse the case and where a reduced heart rate variability is also associated with, you know, increased likelihood of decreased psychological flexibility, or uh, if if that was too many words, basically, if HRV at rest goes down, are people more likely to be psychologically inflexible? Yeah, I mean that that's what we found in our research, at least that um, we did we did a really cool study a few years ago where we got about fifty people in with uh, with the diagnosis of anxiety. Uh, these, these were young undergraduate students, so they were at eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and then we had about fifteen people who didn't have a diagnosis. And um, as well as being interested in the actual diagnosis of anxiety, we're also interested in overall measures of worry or rumination. So, uh, you know, how much does you know, how good how much do you have something going over your mind? Uh, how much are you worrying from day to day? And uh, we asked this for both the people who had a diagnosis of anxiety, which we confirmed ourselves, and also the healthy control group. And uh, prior research has um, has found a lot of differences between people with anxiety. They tend to have lower HRV compared to controls. Um, but we didn't actually find that. We, we found there were some modest differences between the two groups. But what we found the biggest difference with was um, when we actually split the groups up just on how much they worry using, uh, using one of the questionnaires that we used. And uh, the people who were the biggest warriors, and that was also including the, the so-called healthy group without clinical anxiety, 
their heart rate variability was much, much less than the people who weren't the warriors. So it was a really good way of actually much, much better way of splitting up the groups than this clinical diagnosis of, uh, of anxiety. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, a lot of folks, you know, who originally find or found our app, for example, were high performing either athletes or uh, weekend warriors that probably were type A personality into quantifying and optimizing and all this stuff. But, you know, one of the messages we've tried to convey is, you know, if if quantifying and optimizing every aspect of your life is causing you to worry about every single last decision that you make and um, how it might impact the, you know, your final time on the triathlon this weekend or something, that you're probably better off just not tracking. And mm. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I mean, advice. you know, I don't want to like, uh, you know, for some people, it's definitely good to bring awareness or for most people, it's definitely good to bring awareness and count quantifying HRV is a good way to do that. But it's definitely, and you're kind of reinforcing this right now by saying worry itself. I just kind of anecdotally or experientially kind of uh, have experienced the same thing is that folks who worry are worrying all the time about the little details mm-hmm. often miss, miss the big picture for one and just two, just kind of end up burning the candle at both ends. So that's really fascinating to hear that whether whether with a diagnosable mental disorder or not, that worry itself caused the biggest change. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, we think it's because, you know, quite often you might have a phobia, for instance, but uh, those phobias are, tr- are transient. You know, you might have a fear of flying, or but that doesn't happen very often for most people. But uh, if you have this uh, rumination or constant worry, it almost follows you around everywhere. So this is, it's almost a, a, a constant sort of insult on the autonomic, autonomic nervous system, which we, we found in almost every single population that I've tested, um, alcohol dependence, anxiety, depression, healthy people, people with autism spectrum disorders, it always pops up when it comes with uh, with worry and uh, and rumination. Okay, and is this is this correlation kind of with worry and heart rate variability, would you attribute it to the autonomic dysregulation or to autonomic dysregulation in general, or would that be just kind of a correlative uh, aspect of the impact that it's having physiologically? I mean, it's it's hard to know. Uh, obviously, it's bi-directional, the relationship between the two things. Right. But, um, you know, yeah, so but th- there is definitely an impact there. So, but uh, it's more likely that the worry and anxiety is is contributing to these reductions in HRV. But then, yeah, I'm sure it's going both ways there. But we, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's so I I used to kind of be well, not kind of. I was a, a personal trainer, health coach, and you know, there's a lot of different things that when you're working one-on-one with people, you're trying to figure out what what is impacting them the most. In a lot of cases, it would be like a combination of many things. And that's kind of what drew me towards heart rate variability initially anyways. But, you know, worrying about all of them at once <laughs> kind of <laughs> made everything worse. Um, and so, you know, in some cases, like you said, people are up at night thinking about things they need to do tomorrow, but then they're impacting their sleep by doing that. And so, well, then they're going to worry about how they're impacting their sleep. So that makes it even worse. 
So I just wanted to kind of put out there that this type of discussion is is interesting because folks listening might start worrying about where they fall on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you are listening to this and worrying, then maybe it's time to take a step back and have a deep breath and <laughs> focus on that exhale like we were just mentioning. And yeah, so I also, I wrote down a quote from one of your papers that I thought was really interesting and powerful. And it says, evidence indicates that changes in HRV and chronic autonomic dysregulation may be the final common pathway for a host of conditions and diseases, including cardiovascular disease and mortality. And to me, that kind of means that before a specific disease manifests, that there's a common expression of change in heart rate variability and autonomic function. And like I just mentioned, kind of when I originally got into heart rate variability, I didn't realize the Pandora's box that I was going to be opening, (laughs) which is really fascinating. But so then real quick, you go on to say this highlights that change in HRV will be observed prior to changes in inflammatory markers and oxidative stress, while a typical diffusible inflammatory response may take hours to days to develop neural signaling contributing to changes in HRV occur within milliseconds. So I find it powerful. I did have to read it a couple times and think about it, but maybe you could just tell folks a little bit about what is kind of the significance of what you're saying in that chunk. Well, the the main thing is that you can actually look at and see these changes almost instantaneously. And quite often these these changes when, when it comes to cardiovascular disease or psychiatric illness, um, or just poor self-regulation can take months or or, or years to manifest. Same with the comparison when it comes to inflammatory markers in that um, there's uh, the autonomic nervous system plays a huge role in regulating inflammatory markers, but sometimes these things can actually take quite a while to to start up. But, uh, you know, it's just startling the huge amount of comorbidity that you see in, um, in mental illness um, when it comes to cardiovascular disease, there's a massive overrepresentation, and this is over and above. The first, when people first notice this, they're like, "Sure, it's the um, it's the medications. It has to be the medications." But people took took a closer look, mm. and there's only maybe a few medications which are really nasty for the autonomic nervous system: tricyclic antidepressants, um, some antipsychotics, but the majority uh, are pretty benign when it comes to the autonomic nervous system. But then when we started actually Controlling for these things, we found like, you know, regardless of medication, regardless of physical activity, regardless of all these other covariates, there still is uh, a, a massive over, over-representation of, of cardiovascular in, um, illness in, in psychiatric illness. So, by looking at heart variability, here we have a, a potential early marker of, 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 of uh, a potential uh, I mean, we, we know it's a really accurate marker for cardiovascular illness. There's been tons of studies done on thousands of people which found that um, it's highly predictive of future cardiovascular events. Um, but what our research is doing is, well, can we actually do the same thing when it comes to psychological events? Um, we know that we can predict what's happening right now. What about what's happening right um, happening in the future? And the, the, okay. the, the beauty of HIV is that it's really... Uh, it's it's quite straightforward to uh, to measure. Um, we we do in our lab 
quite a lot of research using brain imaging. And, and it's a fantastic technology and it's just incredible that we can uh, peer inside people's heads, so to speak. But it's ex- <laughs> it's expensive. Um, we, we, only have, we only have one scanner that we can access in, in, the, in the hospital, whereas heart variability can be, uh, can be measured by uh, you know, a number of rel- relatively inex- inex- inexpensive devices. So you can just get some incredible amounts of data. Yeah, that's that's very true. And uh, what what specifically, just out of curiosity, kind of which HRV metrics do you prefer to use uh, when you're looking? I know that um, you've actually even written papers on standards of measurement for heart rate variability. So I'd be curious, just in summary, which you prefer to look at. Is it kind of the time domain, frequency ratios, those types of things, and then also shorter snapshots or longer continuous readings? Just what are your thoughts? I, uh, in my research, I tend to either use RMSSD, a uh, time domain measure, or, or high frequency, um, uh, a frequency domain measure. Um, okay. I tend to, keep to, tend to keep to those two just for the sake of consistency. I, I read a stat that there's over 70 measures now. So it's, uh, wow. there's, uh, there's quite a lot out there. But the thing is, all of them are quite highly correlated. Um, but the reason that I like using um, high frequency and RMSSD is that these are the two measures that have the, the longest tradition in a cardiac sense. So when they, when they were doing all this research looking at can HIV predict future cardiac mortality, the two measures they were looking at primarily, well, the, the three measures they were looking at primarily were high frequency, RMSSD, and um, and PNN50 back 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 in the back in the day. Um, and because these measures have the longest tradition, these are the ones I want to continue with. Um, now, when it comes to recording length, um, the majority of my research, I'll take a short recording, sometimes as low as two minutes, as short as two minutes. Uh, particularly if I'm sort of in a, uh, we do a lot of measurements now within an MRI scanner. And those, uh, we want to, you know, keep people in those scanners as least time as, as least time as possible because it's quite claustrophobic in there. If you mm-hmm. haven't been in one before, um, but then if if there's no time constraints, then typically um, I'll record for, um, for for five minutes. But um, but one thing I have started doing is more more looking at is more uh, longer term recording. So what's happening overnight? So more more sleep recording. And, um, and, you know, what's happening over the course of the day. But the majority of my research is more kind of short-term, two, five, ten-minute recordings. Nice. Yeah, and I kind of tell people uh, you can get, like, you know, bulk of the benefit from short re- recordings um, and that the longer-term uh, recordings are really if you want to dive in on a specific situation. But you'll probably find even more, uh, of course, uh, with the longer-term readings. But... No, that's great. Uh, I mean, th- those are kind of a lot of the metrics that we like to focus on, specifically RMSSD, of course, um, and then HF. Uh, it's just nice to hear because, you know, we, we teach about this in the HRV course mm. and things, and it's always good to hear that coming from a completely neutral kind of third-party opinion that we're on the right track with this stuff. So, <laughs> you know, it's always good to hear that. But so what about kind of depression. We, we mentioned depression and anxiety and, and different things in here. Um, there's a lot of research now linking depression with reduced heart rate variability and autonomic dysregulation. And it, depression is now considered one of the most important risk factors for cardiovascular disease. We, you, you just kind of mentioned some of that. A lot of comorbidity uh, occurs with psychological uh, conditions. But 
a lot of the, it turns out a lot of research and I am just kind of thinking about some of the paper of your paper that I read was actually done on people who already had f- previous physical pathology, such as cardiovascular disease. And you kind of took it a step further to see if depression in and of itself, regardless of, uh, or in otherwise seemingly healthy individuals also caused reductions in HRV. And, and what did you find with that? Yeah, so that was um, that was uh, that was actually the first study I ever published. So that was uh, it's a nice uh, nice blast from the past. Uh, there you to, go. To that one, um, but yeah, th- this is a really important study in that um, there'd been uh, up to that point maybe about uh, fifteen or twenty studies which was looking at HIV and depression. Um, except, like you mentioned, a lot of these studies uh, were including people that already had cardiovascular disease. So there's a big confound there. So it was, it was really hard to actually tease apart um, the effects of cardiovascular disease and the effects of depression on these reductions. So with this uh, with this meta-analysis, we we specifically targeted studies which excluded people with cardiovascular disease. And then um, at the time, it, it was looking pretty um, it was looking pretty even. If you actually did, looked at the studies, I'd say about half of them would say yes, there's a reduction. Another half would say no, there's no difference. But the thing is, um, you, you can't just vote count and say, "Well, there are you know there are twelve studies that say yes and eight that say no." So you know the the yays have it. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> we 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 employed a meta analysis, which is a way of actually um, synthesizing a whole uh, a whole research area. And by doing meta analysis, you can actually account for the different sample sizes. You can also account for study quality and and, and all these different things. But most importantly, you account for these um, for these sample sizes. So. A study that has 10,000 people is going to contribute more to this summary effects, to this sort of summary number that you generate versus a study with 100 people. So it's a really nice, nice way of doing it. So we, we employed that uh, method of meta analysis, and that's what we found that there was um, once you um, account for cardiovascular disease, there still is a reduction in heart rate variability compared to healthy controls. And we also had a look at medications, and we found that, um, you know, I think uh, antidepressants are one of the most prescribed uh, medications globally, but um, we found that at least n- none of the modern SSRIs um, seemed to have an effect on HIV. It was only some of the older um, tricyclic antidepressant medications which which seemed to have an effect. Um, so that that's good considering that quite quite a lot of people uh, are taking uh, taking SSRIs or SRNIs uh, for uh, for depression. So that was uh, that was nice to see. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, a couple of points on that stuff is that one, Alyssa and I uh, were going through a lot of your research and and some of the meta-analyses and she was saying, this is some of the most thorough, well-documented research that I've ever read. She was commenting on that and then she said, it's no wonder they came out with standards of measurement because they've been through (laughs) so many of these studies um, just doing these meta-analyses. And so you found that so depression can cause a significant in, uh, reduction in HRV, independent kind of the of typical physical pathology, and this kind of means that major depressive disorder is having a significant measurable impact on on the physical body and overall health. In fact, it could even be leading the depression. For example, could actually lead to physical pathologies. You could kind of extrapolate that. I know I don't know if that was actually a point that was made in the research, but it kind of sticks out to me is that 
And uh, so this is pretty serious stuff, uh, which kind of leads to the topic of intervention, which you already just touched on, you know, how do we fix this type question. And I was surprised to learn that what you just said, antidepressants are kind of one of the most commonly prescribed medications in medical practice. And I realized that it was common. I did not realize that it was one of the most common and that it even surpassed uh, drugs prescribed for hypertension, for example. Uh, I, I don't think it'll, not, not as much as hypertension, but it would be, it'd be up there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh man. It was, uh, so it's, it's obviously a lot. And you said there's kind of different types. Uh, maybe we could just quickly touch on that again. You said tricyclic antidepressants, TCAs are the older type. How do those work exactly? Uh, so it's, it's been a while since I've dove into the, uh, to the, to the, to the pharmacology, but it, it was a, uh, it's an older type, which doesn't seem to be prescribed as much. Typically, it's more used for more treatment-resistant depression, so more severe cases. Okay, uh, and, and the more common one is the SSRIs, right? Yeah. Uh, so, that's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's correct, and, yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but basically, those block the neurotransmitter receptor sites for serotonin. Well, uh, they, they block the, the, the reuptake of the, uh, of the serotonin. Okay. Yeah. And um, and you said a little bit ago, um, a lot of these, or at least the SSRIs, the, the modern or the more recent ones, they're more common. They may, they don't seem to really affect heart rate variability directly. Um, so they're, they're possibly less harmful than the older drugs, um, but the results maybe aren't conclusive on that all the way. Um, is that kind of what I was reading? Yeah, yeah. So that's um, so yeah. It, it doesn't seem to have an effect either way. But uh, I think the other important thing to consider is, um, you know, when, when it comes to psychiatric medications, particularly with um, antipsychotics, can have um, can play havoc with um, with the metabolic systems. But when you actually weigh up, and when you actually weigh up the impact of uh, antipsychotics on the metabolic system, including the autonomic nervous system. And then the, uh, the, the the quality of life, but also the actual years of life that are added by giving these medications, then the the benefits, or at least the psychiatric benefits of these medications, do outweigh the the metabolic effects that you get. This is more in the case of antipsychotics. So I mean, yeah, it's, 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 these are important factors to weigh up um, uh, for because um, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't be prescribing antipsychotics if they're having such terrible effects. But the thing is, without that. It's just um, it's you you're far far worse off in that case. Okay, and I like to well, we talked a little bit about these actually in episode three of this podcast with Dr. Eldred Taylor, and um, so he has a clinic that is a functional medicine practice in Atlanta, Georgia, which is actually not that far from me. Um, but we talked about antidepressants, and in his experience. It's very hard to get folks off of antidepressants because when you kind of dig down to the root cause of the situation, they are indeed improving the quality of life of the individual in the moment. And like you said, possibly uh, having a a greater long-term effect than we think uh, as opposed to the metabolic damage. But, But anyways, kind of digging down into the root cause, which is what he does with his patients, uh, he kind of finds antidepressants to be like a band-aid solution um, that actually can kind of make the root situation worse. And so, he talks about that he he sees a correlation, a negative 
uh, correlation between antidepressant use and heart rate variability. Then again, he's not controlling for other factors. I mean, folks that are on antidepressants, like you said, may have a lot of comorbidity um, as well. But he does find that their parasympathetic system is really depleted and they've they seem to be, through other testing, generally depleted in their ability to produce neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and GABA. Mm. Um, and uh, it, in his experience, the continued use of antidepressants seems to kind of desensitize the receptors for some of those and cause further reduction in the neurotransmitter production that happens naturally over time. So then when he tries to kind of form a protocol for getting folks off of these, maybe five years after they started them, for example, their natural hormone production is a bit lower. And that the only way that he finds really to restore that fu- natural function is to actually restore the health of the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system using things like amino acids, micronutrients, uh, changes in lifestyle that help reduce overall inflammation and all of that. So, uh, lots of stuff I'm just kind of <laughs> dumping out there, but mm. um, I like this quote that he kind of says when he, when he talks to clients, he says, it's, it's not because you don't have enough Zoloft in your system. It's really because you don't have enough precursors that allow your autonomic nervous system to function correctly. So, I'm uh, kind of bringing this back around to just to your opinion, am I talking about the same thing here? And in your observation, do the do certain drugs that reduce heart rate variability possibly have a lasting effect on future health that you know we, you kind of touched on, but maybe we could touch more on that? I, th- I think it's actually quite an interesting research question because we have a, we have a fairly good idea about what's happening when people are taking it right now, but we're not really sure on the long-term effects. Maybe there is an effect, maybe there's not. But at the moment, we, we don't really know whether there is any long-term effects of actually uh, taking you know years and years of these medications and what happens. And, of course, yeah, um, it, it is quite uh, quite a process to actually get people off antidepressants. Um, you can't just say someone, you know, stop taking them next day. You have to, uh, you have to mm-hmm. tamp down and it can take quite a while. Um, so there, 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 definitely is a role there. But um, as for the long, as for the long, long term use, um, at least from the from the research that I've observed, it's a bit tricky to say. I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the pros and cons, so to speak, of doing or being on the research side versus being kind of like clinical. Is he kind of has the room wiggle room to experiment on a case yeah. by case basis? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and. When you're, when you're, and folks, I think kind of, you could probably make a better, say this more eloquently than me, but folks don't realize sometimes that when you're putting research out, how you have to be very careful the way you say things, because sure, there's plenty of examples on a case by case basis of this or that happening. But when you say for sure that you're pretty statistically confident that this is a, a cause and effect, that Lots of people will be then making decisions off of that. <laughs> yeah, we have to be very, uh, we have to be very, very careful. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's just the name of the game for research, and we we learn a bit every single paper. And uh, sometimes we hit dead ends, other times we uh, we strike gold. But then we just uh, we just continue uh, continue learning and going uh, and going bit by bit. Cool. Yeah. So 
Uh, kind of on the similar vein, what are some non-pharmacological interventions that are seeing positive results? And basically, I just am framing it in the sense of they increase HRV or improve systemic health condition. Well, we did a, um, a really interesting study a number of years ago, which was looking at performance anxiety in musicians. We had uh, one of our students in our lab, she was a semi-professional jazz musician and, um, and she noticed um, a lot of the people in her scene, at least, were taking a lot of medications just to, to calm the nerves a bit when they went out to perform. And then uh, she got in contact with our lab and um, said, hey, I've, I've heard a lot about this uh, deep breathing um, and how that can have an impact on anxiety. Can I run this experiment in your lab if I you know, recruit all these musicians? And we're like, cool, come on in, do that. And she was uh, Ruth, Ruth Wells. She was a fantastic student. And um, I can send you the link to the, uh, to, to the actual study itself. But basically, we got these musicians to come in and we got them to play an impossibly hard piece of music, sight reading an impossibly hard piece of music. And, um, and then um, during the week, we gave them a whole bunch of breathing exercises. And then, uh, then when, when they came back and did another performance, we looked at the impact um, both on how they performed but also on their self-reported anxiety and we found that there was a there was a big reduction in uh, in self-reported anxiety for the musicians that did the deep breathing exercise. So it made quite a difference. And on top of that, the deep breathing obviously had a large impact on a, a large increase in HRV. And so it was a nice little intervention that we saw, at least when it when it came to performance anxiety in musicians. And it's something that I think can be um, also attributed to. Um, to a whole range of different types of anxiety. This is just one type of anxiety, but um, you know, m- much in the same way that public speaking is quite nerve-wracking for a lot of people. This is uh, it's, it's it's very similar when it comes to public performance when you're playing a uh, playing a musical instrument. So this is a really cool research study that was done, and um, I've always uh, I haven't actually done any interventions like that since, and uh, I've, it's one of my favorite studies. So it's something I wanted wanted want to do again sometime. Oh yeah, that's that's awesome. That's really powerful. I mean. Yeah, I think folks, well, <laughs> I think a lot of people would be nervous to get up and play music in front of others. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, people can try to relate this back to different things that they have to do in day-to-day life, like give presentations in a, a work environment or in school, or like you said, uh, public speaking, or even just talking to uh, somebody that you're attracted to, mm. or, you know, different things like that. So, you know, it's that kind of... Uh, nice to put some quantifiable, like you said, in, in an intervention situation, saying that the breathing, especially, I think uh, you had them focus on long exhales. Is that, or what What kind of pattern uh, did you prescribe? Yeah, it was, um, so we're looking at um, specifically focusing on the, the, the inhalation and exhalation ratio with the focus on long exhales. Very cool. Yeah. And I think uh, in some of your other work too, you talked about, cognitive behavioral therapy and kind of the impact that it had in conjunction with or without SSRI drugs. Uh, did you you feel open talking about that too or? Uh, yeah. So, with that, um, you know, we find that um, over time, uh, one, of the, one of the things we have been looking at when it comes to therapy is um, the relationship between the HIV of the therapist and the HIV of the patient. So we've been looking Ooh, at ways, yeah. So we've been looking at ways um, of actually seeing 
um, you know, does, uh, does, does the patient and the therapist actually report a better session if they're actually more in sync? And we can look whether they're in sync um, looking at their respiration, looking at their heart rate. So it's a really cool application of, um, of, uh, of seeing sort of the, 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 the patient-therapist relationship there. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of really cool applications for that. And we also do something similar for, for parents and children. Um, so if there's children with developmental difficulties, quite often um, I've got some colleagues or some collaborators who get uh, one of the caregivers and one of the kids in the lab and have a structured play session, and then we look at um, you know over time. So if if the if the, um, the the child's getting therapy for the developmental or the neurodevelopmental disorder, we look at over time. Do the child and the parent actually have more in sync physiology when they're playing together? So there's lots of cool ways that you can look at those two things together. Oh yeah, that's really fascinating. I'd be really curious to learn more about that. I mean. Um, we actually have a, a couple different groups that are looking at the... So, we have a group in California that's looking at the relationship between parent and child in uh, troubled homes, essentially, where the child may have actually been uh, taken out of the home previously and is being reintroduced back into the family in a controlled way. Um, and it goes with therapy. There's obviously a lot of potential tension um, and a lot of stress in that situation. Um, but they're just basically trying to show using kind of heart rate variability what the physical manifestations are of these interactions between parent and child. And then also showing through counseling what the difference is between uh, the counseling session patterns and the session that are kind of just like free form interaction where there's a lot of tension usually. So it's really interesting stuff and it's totally kind of 180 from where we originally started, which was like high performance athletes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's lots of you know, applications. I, yeah, yeah. It's um and I, I love the high performance scene, but um it's this type of stuff that really kind of is just changing the lives uh, or could potentially change the lives of uh, people on a really, really deep level. So, but yeah, so yeah, a couple just, I just wanted to throw out a couple of uh, notes that people wouldn't have, it wouldn't be a surprise for folks to hear me say that in my experience, um, yeah, guided breathing with a long exhale is a great way of kind of acutely increasing HRV. And it sounds like, based on your intervention with the musicians, that that could actually translate to lasting effects. Um, and, you know, that's one of the areas that I tell folks uh, it's neat to kind of, re, uh, you know, mark down kind of some contextual information of, on their own if they're trying to do some self-experimentation, you know, noting down their mood, noting down changes in their performance or uh, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to improve um, can also help when they're recording or doing these types of biofeedback sessions. But, uh, and then gen generally increasing aerobic fitness levels, um, that'll increase heart rate variability. And as long as it's not taken to too much of an extreme too fast, it's usually favorable. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. I, I always check whether the, um, <laughs> whether they're athletes or we, we always look at the physical activity levels because that's a massive covariate of, um, of heart rate variability 
in our in our research. So yeah, very yeah. Important. So yeah, have you seen? I mean, obviously, yeah, definitely is. But how do you kind of do? You just eliminate those folks from some cases, or like if you have somebody who comes in that's like a marathon runner and they have really high degree of HRV, but they might also have you know depression and cardiovascular disease, and they think that the marathon is gonna <laughs> they're gonna run their way out of it but we'll, that's, that's another topic but we'll, we'll typically uh, we'll typically include most people and um and just get a measure of their physical activity and we can typically include that as a covariate um the the only people we may exclude is if people um breathe like incredibly incredibly slowly uh and they may do that um because they may be experienced meditators and when we ask someone, oh, just 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 lie back and relax while we measure, just by habit, they actually, um, <laughs> and I, I can literally see it on the ECG that they're starting to breathe in a sort of a meditative way. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like a perfect, uh, it's like a perfect sine wave. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, m- more often than not, um, at least when it comes to physical activity, generally speaking, I'll just include that as a covariate. And it's tricky though, because sometimes when we're actually comparing healthy control groups with psychiatric groups, um, you, you do find that healthy people are, tend to be more active. It's not a, just no surprise there. So we just right. need, when we do our analyses, we just need to make sure. Okay, once we actually account for these differences in physical activity, do we still find differences? And typically we do, but it's important in the first place to actually make sure that um, that potentially. Um, I mean, if you had if you had just a bunch of athletes, then I think you may get some differences. But if you're just getting the average university student, you get a bit of a mix: people who are quite active, people who aren't. So. Um, yeah, the, the differences don't tend to be that that big. Right. And just since we kind of, it just kind of came to mind since you talked about children and, you know, whenever we're talking about these various measures, RMSSD, uh, high frequency power and, uh, and such, uh, I often get the question, is this, is this relevant for my children or, or am I too old for, for this measure or something like that? And what would you say? kind of to folks just in general if they're trying to experiment and do some self-measurement? I, I would say just stick with RMSSD, um, primarily because RMSSD is less sensitive to differences in the respiration. Whenever we're doing uh, using high-frequency recording, if we're, at, we're, we're working with kids, which we do occasionally, then we have to actually shift the, the, the frequency bounds purely to relate to the differences in breathing respiration because kids tend to breathe a lot quicker. Um, so that being said, if you're sort of worried about those things, the most robust measure, I would say, um, particularly in regards to respiration, would be RMSSD. So stick with that measure. Okay. Yeah, and that's that coincides. Thanks for helping affirm reaffirm that. That's why we <laughs> we've stuck so much with RMSSD in the app, just because of that. Is that you know when making, it's kind of similar to like we were just saying with the research when we're making kind of general recommendations to people that we've never met in person before you know we want to stick with the most robust measures and rmssd seems to corroborate that for us as well so yeah no that's interesting and um it's it's also interesting that the breathing patterns of the the really slow breathers are one of the criteria that may uh qualify for exclusion because (laughs) oh go ahead yeah, so we mainly do that because it, we want to be able to keep the same frequency bands for for the entire sample. 
but if someone's uh, breathing very slowly, and I mean, if I'm testing 80 people, this might come up once, so it's not that common. Right. But then uh, in order to actually keep the same frequency band for the entire population, um, technically speaking, if I'm using high frequency, which, which I tend to do with my research, then um, if someone's not actually breathing within the high frequency, you're not actually capturing parasympathetic activity because you're sort of outside of that band there. But yeah, that I mean, and, and exactly at the same time, if they're breathing too quickly, um, you don't tend to find that in healthy controls. But um, occasionally, in people with anxiety, like I've seen people with anxiety with 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 resting heart rates of um of you know ninety or a hundred, and I just have to make sure that they're okay. Uh, but it's just uh, for, for mm-hmm. a lot of people, particularly with psychiatric illness, the lab can be a very uh, a very um very stressful experience, which is why having um, at home recording. Can actually be quite handy because people people feel more comfortable doing that. Um, yes, like it's it, it can make an enormous difference rather than for some people telling them sit there and just sit there still and we're, we're just going to record for five minutes is an incredibly stressful experience. So by actually collecting at home recordings, which is what more and more of my collaborators are doing, then I, I I think this can be a really big help in actually getting a more truer sense of um, of autonomic nervous system function over and above any situational anxiety that we may find in the lab. Yeah, it's it's huge and it it's hard to it's hard to really notice until you work with a lot of people um how varying it can be for folks. Um because some people can go in and you could put them in a straight jacket and wrap them with wires and they would be like, "Okay, I'll, you know, it's fine." And other people would freak out if mm. you did that. And so it's like you said, it kind of comes back to that worry or the those those types of emotions and ruminating and things. It's like, well, if you come into a lab for a test, you're kind of worrying what are the results going to be? What is the what is the uh, researcher or clinician thinking about me? Or you mm. know, what there's there's lots of variables versus when you're at home, you're kind of in your own element. And especially if you can collect multiple samples, you kind of get used to the process a little bit. So, yeah, that's uh, good stuff. So, do you uh, use any quantification or, or biofeedback in your own life? I do a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm pretty picky when it comes to, to data quality, as you can see from all the uh, the papers I've done. <laughs> yep. um, so, you know, I, I, do, I do track my own uh, activity data and sleep mainly just using my, my Apple Watch, really. and then. Um, but when it comes to actual HRV, because I'm so picky with the, with the quality of data, <laughs> I don't really do it that often myself. I do it when I'm sort of testing new equipment and so forth, but I don't. Uh, it's not something that I'm tracking day-to-day, but definitely when it comes to um, activity and sleep and, um, and you know, average heart rate during, during workouts and whatever, that's something that I, that, that I am tracking. Very cool. Yeah, that's that's neat. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the quantification and biofeedback tools, whether HRV or anything else, um, you know, a lot of it is about creating awareness in your life. And so you are acutely aware of the autonomic nervous system, I would say. <laughs> so, so, so some other variables might also be more useful, anyways. But um, uh, so that's that's cool. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, let's see, what was I going to say? It, it doesn't matter. There, there's a couple other ways that folks can increase HRV. We write about them in blog posts and you can find them by Googling about them. But so I just wanted to mention them since we're, we were on the topic. 
you know, reducing systemic inflammation by eliminating kind of offending dietary choices, so foods or environmental exposure to to different things, kind of trying to identify some of those and removing them might help alleviate some overall inflammation, improving nutrient delivery, blood flow, and waste removal. That all can be improved by becoming more mobile, doing some mobility work, moving more, going outside, um, and then acute temperature changes, exposing yourself to both hot and cold can kind of have a hormetic effect in my experience and in my personal kind of digging around in the literature. But I've actually started uh, experimenting with that, with doing oh, uh, okay. cold, cold showers. Nice. How's that going for you? Oh, it's, it's so far, it's so far so good. Not, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that. Yeah. I've, I've started trying that to see how the, um, uh, the last sort of few minutes of the shower, I turn the, uh, and the water in Norway is particularly cold. I <laughs> 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 bet. So it's, uh, it's, it's, I tell you, it, it wakes you up at the very least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I didn't actually, uh, yeah, now put, put the link together. So that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, that it's uh, it's cool that you're experimenting with that. See, I'm from Texas originally. It's quite warm where I'm from, Houston, Texas. And so, when I first learned about kind of doing cold showers and stuff, I was thinking, oh, well, when I'm home, this will be easy because it's hot outside and it'll feel good and, and whatever. And then I moved to North Carolina. Now I'm kind of in the mountains a little bit. And for folks who live next to tall mountains, these mountains aren't that tall, but it's a little colder here and it's the winter and getting in those cold showers is becoming harder and harder. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, like you said, a good strategy is to start out with a comfortable temperature and then just the last couple of minutes, um, you could even kind of make it a little hotter than you like it for a few 30 seconds and then drop it down to that cold for a couple of minutes. And I, I particularly find that if you get the cold water on the upper back, that it, it definitely causes me to go. <gasps> yeah. It and, does have that effect. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, yeah, it, it, it becomes a little more, more tolerable after a few minutes. So, but yeah, great way to, uh, kind of increase your temperature tolerance, mm. uh, in general. And then it also, uh, supposedly has good effects, lasting effects for autonomic regulation and things like that as well. So cool stuff. Well, Dan, I think as usual, uh, when we talk about heart rate variability, this rabbit hole can go pretty deep. <laughs> I'll go talk uh, hours. <laughs> well, that's great. No, it's, uh, it's. I had a really good time going through a lot of your research and I'd seen it before, but, you know, just kind of in preparation, like to brush up on things. And like Alyssa said, it's, it's very thorough and deep stuff. So I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your opinions and letting folks, you know, put a a voice to uh, the research if they care to go read primary research and meta meta analyses. But uh, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Yeah, so we'll wrap wrap it up there. You know, we can always do another round. Uh, If folks can find more information about you, like I mentioned via Twitter, is that the the best place to kind of go for all things? I think so, yeah. Okay, and that's at DS Quintana. That's correct. Okay, and we'll have links to that and everything that we've discussed over on the website at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. With that, we'll wrap up. And again, thanks, Dan, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. 
What a fantastic episode. I really enjoyed conversing with Dan Quintana and look forward to picking his brain on future topics as well. Um, Just a quick reminder about the HRV course since the enrollment period is so short. I just wanted to drop another line um, and let you know that it is opening soon and closing soon because the enrollment period is lasts just about a week or so um, each season. And if you'd like to check that out, head on over to hrvcourse.com slash elite HRV. And that, again, that is the Foundations of Heart Rate Variability course, which goes over the foundational science mechanisms and real-world application of heart rate variability. Includes everything from time domain to frequency domain and all the various values that you've heard about on this podcast Um, Actually, a lot of the experts in this podcast have contributed knowledge to that course. Um, So head on over to hrvcourse.com slash EliteHRV. Check that out and have a great day. Sponsored by hrvcourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code Elite Podcast for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word Elite Podcast. Visit hrvcourse.com to get access today.